for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50. I am John Jagge. So happy today to be joined by Mary Mary Mancini from the class of 1985 and Hall of Famer. So good to be with you. John, thank you so much for doing this. And for having me. Appreciate it. There's so much to talk to you about. I learned so much about you at your Hall of Fame induction speech a few years ago when you took us really behind the scenes of what life was like at JPZ in the early and mid 80s. Tell me from the beginning how you ended up at Syracuse and at the station. Yeah, sure. So I grew up uh, in a small town on Long Island and I was very enamored with radio. So you know, growing up listening to Brink and Belzer on WABC, listening to Howard Stern on WNBC. I believe you mean WNBC. Uh, you know, I do. I do. And then also on Long Island, there was one of the first alternative rock stations that came out in the genre called uh, WLAR. Mm-hmm. And so I became enamored with that station. So I always loved radio. And when my guidance counselor sort of pulled me in, and said, you know, what do you want to do? Oh, I was also doing announcements, high school announcements as well. Me too. <laughs> did you really? Yeah. It seems yeah. to be a thread, right? That runs through. The, everybody did their high school announcements. And so I said, well, I want to do radio. And so at that time, we there was, a, you know, that was a very rudimentary computer where you could put your interests in and it would sort of churn <laughs> out the schools. I remember that paper and it was really noisy and the paper that had the holes on the, the side. The dot matrix the printer, dot yes. matrix printer, yeah. I think airlines still use them. Oh, yeah, exactly. And so Syracuse University came out and so did... Um, What was the other one? I guess the University of Idaho also had a really good (laughs) broadcasting school. And so I was looking at both of them and the obvious choice was Newhouse in Syracuse to go and learn, learn from the best. And so that's what I chose. And I was fortunate enough to get in and it was a great experience. How did you come into uh, the halls of WJPZ when you got to Syracuse? Ah, so I think uh, if I remember correctly, I actually started out at WAER doing radio. And and I think that was mostly because of the music aspect, right? At WAER at the time, it was a freeform station. You could pretty much play whatever you want. Mm. And so I, again, I was, I was so uh, into the music at the time. And so I did that mainly. And then I went to JPZ because AER got shut down, really. Or I shouldn't say got shut down. The way we knew AER as being a student-run, operated, free-form music station was taken away by the administration. And there was a padlock put on the door that locked all the kids out. And Wait, so they had a padlock too? I believe they had a padlock too, <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that... This was a university padlock, not a government padlock. Okay. Exactly, exactly. And uh, it was snatched away from the students who were running it because of the administration, the new chancellor or someone thought it would be a great idea to turn it into an NPR affiliate. Mm -hmm. And it actually became a much more uh, professional incubator of students who were interested in doing radio after that. But it did take away some of the heart and soul of it, right? So it was uh, news and sports focused NPR affiliate, and the music was just not there anymore. So 
because that happened, I sought out the next best thing or the better thing, it turned out, which was WJPZ. And uh, I remember, I think my first shift was four to seven in the morning. Yep. In the old building, the old Spectrum Records building. And, and I just remember so clearly climbing up those rickety old wooden stairs to get to the studio. And I remember, you know, just being on the air and, and really learning how to be a DJ. And uh, we couldn't play whatever we wanted, but it was a better media classroom. I think, for someone who was interested in radio. So that's how I landed at WJPZ. Sophomore year, I believe, uh, 4 to 7 a.m. And um, that was tough. (laughs) We have all been there, many of us. I remember the 4 to 6 shifts. I remember the 6 to 9 on Saturday morning wasn't much easier after being out on Friday night, too. I have no idea what you mean. Tell me about uh, your time at the station and your different roles you had there, Mary. So I started out as a DJ, and I believe I did traffic and, and not, um, I think what people mostly think of traffic, they think of helicopters and, and road traffic, but traffic in radio is logging all of the commercials and the, what else do you log? PSAs and sponsorships, everything that's not music or a sweeper, right? Thank you. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I did that for a while. And then I worked my way up. I think I did some afternoon shows at some point, but then became part of the morning crew, the crazy morning crew, which was the highlight. I mean, that was so much fun. And I mean, if you like to laugh, (laughs) just I was just surrounded by uh, a lot of really, really funny people and really creative, funny people. Who was in the show with you? Um, Well, Tom, Tom Giarosso and Scott Sookman, they did handled most of the production and the bits and stuff like that. Then there was the team of uh, Dan Class and um, David Bosco, may he rest in peace. And they uh, also were kind of a team that did their own bits. And I was on with them sometime. Happy Dave Dwyer, yeah, who's being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Um, oh, gosh, I'm trying to think who else. So many. And then there was a the whole news and sports division, Rob Weingarten, uh, did sports, Dano Wolkoff. And I know I'm I'm leaving people out and I'm so sorry, but it was just a really great class of, like I said, really creative, funny, funny, funny people. That was the highlight. And then I was music director, uh, which made sense. That was actually great too, because uh, what I wanted to do as music director is I didn't want to concentrate on one genre of music. I said, if it's a good song, it's a good song, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't matter if it's rock or pop or new wave or, you know, it it didn't matter if it's a good song, R&B or whatever. If it's a good song, it's a good song and we should play it. And so WJPZ at that time became known for that, right? For just uh, mixing all the genres together. I mean, it's still a top 40 station, but you didn't have to be, it wasn't like strictly a rock station or strictly a pop station. Sure. And I was given the the freedom and the latitude by, um, you know, the program director, um, the general manager to do that. So that was a lot of fun. That was a great creative outlet for me as well. You were there. You are very famously in the annals of WJPZ history, featured in the Daily Orange when the station flipped over to FM. Tell me about what went into that and how that happened. Oh, my parents were so proud to see my (laughs) picture on the cover of the Daily Orange. There's a lot of things you could be in the Daily Orange for. This Uh would have been a good reason, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I think there's better people to tell that part of the story than me. I was really, really focused on the music part of it. What I knew is that there were people like Eric Fitch and Bob Flint and Chris Mossman and Mark Humble just doing all the work in the background to actually make that happen. And I think at the time, you know, I was on the air, I was doing the music and um, I'm not sure if I didn't appreciate what they were doing. I'm not sure if that was it, but it wasn't really on my radar Okay, uh, as much as it is now and looking back on it and realizing how much work it was to put a radio station on the air because they just did it, you know, yeah. uh, they just didn't make a big deal out of it. And and so this is what they wanted to do. They're single-minded, you know, professional people and they just made it happen. But it was, I, I remember the feeling of just that first time we were on the air and uh, of course I cried because I'm a crier <laughs> and it just was such a great feeling of, you know, relief and release, right? Like we're going to flip the switch. Here it is. This has been months in the making and now it's finally going to happen. And again, looking back on it, I think we were all working really hard in an entity that wasn't really making an impact, (laughs) but we were still doing it anyway, right? Like we weren't doing it because we wanted to be heard on the air. We were doing it because we wanted to learn how to do radio and we wanted to be a part of that community which was a fantastic community. We wanted to learn every aspect of how you, you know, outside of the classroom, like put all what you learn in the classroom into practice. And so I think when we finally went on the air, and and let me just speak for myself, the difference was, it was night and day, right? From where we were to finally being on a station where people could hear you. And not to mention all those records you were picking up probably sounded so much better on FM too. That's right. Well, that's right. And people heard him. And so so what that translated for me as the music director was putting a song on and then going to Spectrum Records and seeing that a song that was being played, the sales for that song were now, you know, exponentially higher. And so that was like, what? Wait, what? Right. Like, so now we're making an impact. And I think it was like that, not just in the music department, but it was like that across the board in all the different departments in news and sports. You know, the crazy morning crew was getting more phone calls. It was just, it was really eye opening and gave us a sense, I think, of, well, again, let me speak for myself, but a sense of, wow, now we're doing something that's having an impact on the community at large. And it just became so much bigger than it was. And it was big back then, you know, it was big before. So. I think that's really telling what you're saying about how, you know, on the AM dial, it was more about getting the experience, learning how to run a radio station. But then it's almost like the cherry on top of the Sunday. Now you're on FM, you're getting that same experience, but now you're actually seeing, hey, there's, and then, well, we've all had that. There's people listening to me. They heard what I said on the radio, or they heard the song that I picked out to play on the radio, or they listened to the morning show. Like, there's such an amazing feeling to that. And I think that translates across all 50 years of the station that we're covering here. I think that's right. I think it's 100% right. There was that. Then there was also the, oh, crap. <laughs> Someone just heard what I said. <laughs> yes, I'm, I was definitely guilty of that when I was there. It's WJPZ at 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. 
Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. Talk to me about your career after Syracuse, Mary. So you were done at Syracuse in 85. And where did you go from there? And tell me about the incredible journey that you've had thus far. Yeah, it's been kind of twisty turny. But I moved to New York and Rocco uh, Macri. So again, there's just an incredible community there yeah. of people that support each other. It's an alumni network uh, like none other. It's just beautiful, right? It's just so, so wonderful. So I moved to New York and I got a part-time job working with Rocco, who was at uh, Hot 97. Mm -hmm. At the time, he was a music director at Hot 97, New York City. There was some other stuff in between there, but it's it's just kind of like me finding my footing and, and trying to figure out where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. So I ended up in New York City and Rocco said, I have a part-time job and I took it while I was looking for a full-time job. Now, remember... I am someone who has loved radio and I always wanted to be in radio. So this is a real weird thing that I did because while I was looking for a part-time job, I got an offer from a record company called uh, Electric Records, which mm -hmm. was having just a heyday in the 80s, to be an assistant in the publicity department. And I told Rocco and he said, well, we're looking for an assistant music director, so I want to offer you the job. So what do you think I did? <laughs> Well, I went with the record company, Wow, okay. which was just, it's just, I look back on it now and it's, um, it's just weird to me. Like, I think my decision-making was, uh, it's expensive to live in New York and the record company job paid just a little bit more. Okay. And so that informed my decision back then. So, so thank you, Rocco, for that. I often, you know, as a thought exercise, like to think, well, what if I had done the other thing? You we know, always, what would, yeah. what would have, yeah, right. It's just weird. So, yeah, we all have those. So that was a real crossroads. So I spent a few years at Electra, and I moved in uh, from the publicity department to the A&R department, which is um, the department that signs bands and musicians. And then um, I felt like I wasn't really getting that far in my career. And it's really hard and expensive to live in New York. Right. And, um, and I kind of wanted something different. So there was a job that opened up in Nashville, Tennessee, for a record company that was starting a rock office there. Most people think of Nashville as country. But every few years, the record companies say, we want to go explore what rock is and pop is down in, in that part of the world. So we're going to do this. Hmm. So there was a job open. And um, I was like, well, I don't have the job yet, but I just want to change. So I'm going to move there. And I did. Picked up, wow. moved to Nashville. I didn't get that job. Huh. But what I did end up doing was I realized that there was no independent record store in Nashville at the time. And I had sort of started DJing there and became enmeshed in that kind of world and that kind of community. And everybody was bemoaning the fact that they couldn't find any independent records. And I was like, well, I'll just open one. Wow. Because when you're, what, 25, 26, you, you're like, sure, why not? I don't need any experience owning a small business or working in a record store. I'll just open it. I love music at work. <laughs> exactly. Nail on the head there, John, the 100%. But it ended up being a really great thing. So I had this uh, this record store that I started to import dance singles. I started to bring in independent vinyl. Uh, there's no place in Nashville that did that. Wow. And then with the help of some folks who were doing all ages punk rock shows, the record store, which was called Lucy's Record Shop, became the place to come see punk rock and indie rock all ages shows. What year did you open the store, Mary? 
I opened it in 92. Okay. And that's really what put it on the map because, again, it was like filling a niche, right? So not only did you have this record store that was filling a niche, but now all of a sudden you have a venue to play that fills a niche, right? And there was no other place in town for that either. There were other places in town that were doing shows, but they weren't all ages, right? It wasn't the kids couldn't come. And that was a huge piece of it that really made it into what it was. And so for about five years, Lucy's became, you know, the place to play in Nashville. And that was during the time of like Riot Girl and grunge and um, pop punk and uh, just the DIY movement, really the do-it-yourself punk ethos, which was I could pick up a guitar on Wednesday and you know, form a band in a week, learn a couple of songs and go play a show at Lucy's. <laughs> That's awesome. Like you didn't really need that much experience to get that show. The DIY ethos also uh, informed the way kids made flyers for their show, right? So a white piece of paper, cutting out pictures and letters, marking uh, when and where they were going to play and going to Kinko's and running it off and posting it on telephone poles or giving it out at other shows, right? So that was an element of it. There was an element of DIY in people expressing themselves through what are called zines, which are basically like Xeroxed little magazines where right. they wrote about things like racism and sexism and so the kids that wanted to actually do visual art, right? Well, Lucy's gave them a place to hang their art. So it really became kind of more of like a, again, a community and a community center for teenagers in Nashville. So I did that for about six years. It was great. And then it was just not great anymore. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of work. I had a, another crossroads at that point, right? I could either get another business loan and move the store to a place where there was more foot traffic and, you know, just make it into more of a, an actual thing. Cause it was in this really weird section of town out of the way section of town mm -hmm. or not, or I could just sell it. And so I decided to sell it instead. Then I was like, well, now I just want a nice quiet job somewhere. So, <laughs> so I ended up for the next 10 years working in technology. I, I got a job as the, um, office manager for an internet service provider. And then over the next 10 years, just sort of learned everything there was to learn about web development, internet service. And I did all kinds of jobs at a couple of different companies, you know, everything from office manager, working in uh, the financial department, tech support, uh, customer service, a little bit of web development, uh, learning how to use content management systems, uh, email marketing. And so I did that for about 10 years. And then... Uh, I don't know, politics came into it somehow. But the way that is relevant to my time and my love of radio is, so I'm working at uh, this internet service provider and my office is a small company. So my office is basically in the conference room, which is where the front door was, right? <laughs> so everybody had to go in and out of my office when they came in or, or left. And one friend of mine who worked there. His name was Freddie O'Connell. And uh, this was during the Bush era, the uh, second Bush era. Mm -hmm. He would come and on his way out and we would just sit and talk politics and, you know, local, national, uh, state politics and bemoan the state of the country and the war and just really have this conversation. And I said, you know, this would make a really good radio show. Yeah. And the only available station at the time 
was a college station <laughs> called WRVU at Vanderbilt University. It was very much like WAER back in the day. It was freeform, student-run, student-operated, freeform music station. But, you know, radio has to have an element of public affairs. Ah. So I went to them and I, and I said, I have this idea for a show. The 2004 election was coming up. And I said, this show is basically going to be a show that tries to get people active in the political process, right? That's the idea for the show. We want more people voting. We want more people knowing about local politics, state politics, what's going on at the federal level. So can we have an hour? Well, I don't think I asked that. I said, can I do the show? And they said, sure, you guys can have an hour on Monday mornings at 6 a.m. Oof. <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> Good thing you had all that experience getting up and being part of the crazy morning crew. Well, it's a good thing I had that experience of doing what you need to do. This is what JPZ taught me, doing what you need to do to get on the air, right? Because the first shift I was assigned at JPZ was 4 a.m. It was like, well, I want to be on the radio, so this is what I'm going to do. So it was, it was second nature, right? It was like, okay, we'll do it from 6 to 7. So we did that, and, and the show actually became really popular, so they moved us to, I think we ended up Thursday mornings, drive time. Wow, okay. I like to say drive time. Thursday mornings from 7 to 9. Prime drive time, absolutely, exactly. yes. Exactly, and it was just a, a, just a wonderful experience because uh, Freddie, Freddie O'Connell, who is a, now a councilman, he's running for mayor of, of Nashville, he and I would do exactly what we set out to do, so we... We talked a lot about politics and activism, but we also interviewed so many people that were either running for office on every level or were in office. We talked to activists, people that were on the ground trying to organize and make things better. And it just became a beloved show. So I'm working in technology, but doing that on the side. And that really raised my profile in the city as someone who was involved in this kind of work. And from there, I was invited to be on a, another public affairs show called Teddy Bart's Roundtable, where they had, you know, the two hosts, and then they had two people from the left and two people from the right. And we would have these just really great conversations. And that was a daily show. So I became sort of a rotating cast member on that show. I was invited to be on the board of an organization called Tennessee Citizen Action. So it really did, again, raise my profile in the city and in the community. And this was a time when people on the left and the right could actually have a civil conversation. Oh, those were the days. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was so different back then. It really was. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> we'll record that one later. <laughs> right, exactly. So from there, thanks to that radio show, I was invited to be on the board of this organization, Tennessee Citizen Action. And at some point, three or four years in, the executive director of that organization left. And I uh, was offered from the other board members to take over that job. And so I transferred from being on the board to being the executive director of Tennessee Citizen Action. And what my job was, was to help people organize themselves. So I traveled around the state most of the time, teaching people how to become activists and advocates on their own behalf. And then I also lobbied at the state legislature for things like um, expanded voting rights, expanded health care. Uh, I lobbied against some of the more harmful 
things that were uh, being proposed at that time. I might be getting my timeline mixed up, but, you know, the anti-gay marriage legislation and all that kind of negative stuff that uh, Tennessee is famous for doing and keeps getting worse. And so I, again, being in that position and being at the state legislature about three years in, I thought, you know what, I want to be here as a contributing member. And so I ran for state Senate and I ran in a district that was uh, gerrymandered on behalf of Democrats. So they had to put the Democrats somewhere when the Republicans did the redistricting. So they stuffed (laughs) them all in a couple of state Senate districts. And so uh, I was running against another Democrat and the primary was going to be the election. So whoever won the primary was guaranteed to win the seat. And I lost in the primary, but I had such a good campaign team around me that people were shocked at how well we actually did. So again, just doing these things, people were like, wow, we didn't know. They said she, but it wasn't me. It was, again, the campaign team that could run such a good campaign. So again, raising the profile. Hmm. And then a couple of months later, the chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party decided that they weren't going to run again. And so I ran for that and I ended up winning and ran for that two more times. You have to run every two years. And so I was the chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party for six years. Mm -hmm. And then um, I decided not to run again in January of 2021. Now I'm looking for the next thing. I took some time off to decompress because that that's a... Ooh, yeah, bet. <laughs> right, I don't even have to go into that. It's hard to be a Democrat in Tennessee for the obvious reasons, but it's also hard to be a Democrat in Tennessee and be a leader in the Democratic Party because, you know, even though we made some modest gains in the state legislature, which was always our goal, it wasn't enough for some Democrats. And... I'll fight with Republicans all day, but I do not like fighting with other Democrats, right? It's just not That's fair. in my nature. Okay, sure. So yeah, so I decided not to run and um, looking for the next thing, decompressing. Oh, the pole of radio, right? But now radio is on-demand radio mm-hmm. and radio is podcasting. I was like, I want to learn something new. I want to learn how to do podcasting. And so I basically taught myself how to do it Before that even happened, I was like, well, what am I going to do? What subject is it going to be? Right? Because I wanted it to be something interesting. And I don't know, it took me a long time to figure it out. And I finally landed on uh, revisiting Lucy's record shop. Oh, wow. So the 30th anniversary of Lucy's was approaching. And the thing about Lucy's and the community that was Lucy's is it was the kids that made it special. The kids that came there were the creative ones. You know, they were having deep conversations, opening up each other's minds. Well, they're now all adults, right? It's 30 years later. Yeah. And I don't know whether it was because I had stopped traveling around the state of Tennessee, which was part of my job as chair, and I was spending more time in Nashville, but I kept running into Lucy's kids, as they're called, or Ah. as they call themselves, right? And having these like, wow, you're doing what now? And you have, you know, you have kids and you're married and you're still playing music or you're an artist or you're, you own your own record store or, you know, just these really great conversations. And just, it took me a minute to figure out, but like, I felt like the universe was hitting me over the head, right? With a hammer saying, this is it. This is your podcast. Sure. And that's what it became. So in the process of telling the stories of all the kids that were part of this Lucy's community, I taught myself how to, you know, write, edit, book guests again, you know, all that kind of stuff. And 
think about doing season two next year. And so I'm kind of trying to figure out what that might look like. The way it is now, it is very niche. And I think it could be expanded into something. But I love doing it. It gets me back to my you know, radio roots without having to send out air check tapes or anything like that. <laughs> and it's fun to do. And it's fun having these conversations. As you know, telling people stories is a great, um, I feel like I've been given a gift, right, to be able to tell these stories. It's fun. It's really funny, the parallels here between your podcast and this podcast, because the reason that we've had success with this podcast is the fond memories and emotional connections that we all have to WJPZ and to the Alumni Association. And what you're describing is the exact same thing with, with Lucy's Record Store, where it's just they have these fond memories and kind of catching up and where are they now and all that kind of stuff. And you're a pro podcaster, because one of my questions is always, you know, how has what you learned at JPZ, you know, helped you throughout your career? You've perfectly and expertly Mary just weaved that all the way through so I don't have to ask the question because you've already answered it awesome so we're done <laughs> uh, we're not quite done yet all right all right all right no but, but let me just say one thing you're 100% right and that's why I and so many others are so grateful that you are taking the time to do this podcast because Every year we get together for the Alumni Association banquet and we retell these stories and we laugh and we just love to reconnect and for you to be able and willing to put that down now in something that will last forever is just incredibly meaningful. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. You talk about this bond that we have through this JPZ Alumni Association. I have a Mary Mancini story and you probably know which one I'm going to tell. No idea. Jack Daniels. Oh! <laughs> so this speaks to the power of the Alumni Association and just what an amazing, wonderful person Mary Mancini is. So I didn't know Mary that well at the time. I, I think, shared a cab with her to the airport in Syracuse once, and we had a perfectly lovely conversation. So I had moved from Detroit to New Orleans for a radio job, and my best friend Kenny that I grew up with, we uh, did the drive down together. We stopped for a night in Nashville. He's a big Jack Daniels fan. We went to the Jack Daniels distillery, and there was this bottle of this really special at the time, hard to find Jack Daniels called Sinatra Select. And we looked at the price of the bottle and said, if we buy this bottle, we might not have enough gas money to make it all the way to New Orleans. So let's so let's not buy it on this trip. And so he got married a year or so later. And I really think back and think, what chutzpah I had to ask Mary this, because this is kind of a big ask now that I look back on it 10 years later. But I said, Mary, um, you know, my best friend in the world is getting married. We really wanted to try this special bottle of Jack Daniels. It, you can't get it online. You can't find it in stores anywhere. Is there any way you would drive an hour out to Lynchburg, Tennessee and get me these two bottles of Jack Daniels and I'll pay you for it, but then and then ship it to New Hampshire so I can go to my best friend's wedding, and get him this bottle of Jack Daniels as a wedding gift. And if somebody asked me that, I would have said, who the hell is this guy asking me that? But you didn't even hesitate. You absolutely did it. Went out of your way to do it for me. And I had a really cool story to get uh, my buddy a really cool wedding gift. And that's the kind of person you are. So I think the world needs to know that story. <laughs> oh, I'm happy. I was happy to do it. I'll do it for anybody. If anybody else wants a bottle of special Jack Daniels, <laughs> just let me know. <laughs> but again, it just goes to the group of alumni that we have. I think that's the point. I think that's the point that it is a special group. I don't think it was chutzpah. I, I think it's, you just knew, you just know, you could call up someone from the alumni association that you don't really know that well at the time and, <laughs> you know, ask them for a favor. And I don't think you'll ever get turned down. It, it is a special community and a special group. 
I'm going to look back on it that way. That's why I asked you. I like that explanation a lot better. <laughs> what else could it be? Mary Mancini, <laughs> Hall of Famer, Class of 85, thank you so much for joining us in the podcast today, and we hope to see you in Syracuse in March. Absolutely. I'll be there. I got my tickets. Thanks, John. The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now.